The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. All right, it's good to see y'all. Turn to uh, the book of First Peter in chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. Peter is an interesting person to study because Peter, at the time of Christ's crucifixion, as you know, uh, denied that he even knew Jesus. He, didn't, he denied his association with Jesus. And a month and a half later, he preached what I think are probably the two most effective sermons in the history of the church. Uh, it seems, depending on what commentary you read, uh, I think 8,000 conversions in two sermons. So, sounds like Southern Baptist numbers um, <laughs> after a conference, uh, but, but they are no doubt legitimate numbers. So, and I can make that joke because um, that's the denomination that I am personally associated with. It's not what I am. So, uh, so what changed was the, the method and the focus and the drive of Peter's teaching. Now, we could get into the, sp- the spiritual uh, application of the fact that Peter was then empowered by the Holy Spirit, that he saw the risen Christ. There was a lot that went on in those six weeks, six to seven weeks. Uh, certainly, post-resurrection Peter is different than pre-resurrection Peter, and, and which is a powerful proof for the resurrection. But I want to look specifically at Peter as a pastor, Peter as a shepherd, because Peter is, prior to the, resurre- or prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, swinging his sword, trying to behead people. Uh, you know, he, he kind of seems to run in extremes. Anybody that's been in student ministry for a long period of time, you can think back to your early years in student ministry and some embarrassing things that you did. And you think, man, God was really gracious that I'm still here doing this. And, and, uh, and, and you think of things maybe that you taught that are borderline heresy and that God, you know, you look back and he must have plugged people's ears and he just was gracious in getting you to a place of, of more maturity in your ministry. And so at the end of Peter's life, we can, we can look back collectively at the, the journey, the process of Peter's sanctification, and we can see a really encouraging work that most of us can identify with. Uh, I, there, we, we often sit around and tell stories about the early days of ministry here at SWO and the things that we did uh, that I don't, if we did today, we would be shut down or we would face a lawsuit that would be so big we wouldn't be able to overcome it. Our insurance company wouldn't take, wouldn't take care of us. The beauty of it back then is we didn't have insurance, and uh, so <laughs> it didn't really matter. We owned nothing. We didn't have anything worth suing over, and we didn't have insurance, so we kind of did what we wanted to do. Uh, so uh, I want to learn from Peter, and particularly if you could imagine... Um, Again, for those of us that have been in ministry for a longer period of time, if you could go back and speak to your younger self. We've got a gal down front that a lot of you have met. Her name's Jenna. I love her dearly. And Jenna is uh, full-time staff here. Jenna started coming here as a seventh grader. And we have this ongoing joke where Jenna will say, 
uh, oh, if I could, if my seventh grade self could see me now, you know, because she was so enamored with SWO as a seventh grader, and a lot of days she'll do, we'll give her a big task to do, she'll do it, and I'll just say, man, Jenna, can you imagine if your seventh grade self could see you right now? And she just laughs, and I think I, I would love for my 25-year-old self to see me now. Uh, I, I think, what, what in the world? I, I would probably make fun of me. Uh, I would make old, old guy jokes about me. Uh, I would, I'd st- I still dress the same, so that hasn't changed. Um, but I know there would be things that I would, I, would, I would criticize. But as an older person in ministry, looking back at two and a half decades of ministry, um, it's, there are things that I wish I had known that I want to impart to a younger generation. And I think that's where Peter's coming from. Uh, as he talks about shepherding the flock of God. And so in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, we'll read 11 verses. This is the word of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We'll stop there. Uh, now, we're going to go through verse 11, but this first five verses of exposition, we recently had a fire here at camp. And in that fire, I, it, was, it was in my personal study. And, uh, and until about four years ago, I didn't do anything with a computer. I did everything handwritten in moleskins and journals. And I lost about 20 years of sermons and journals and notes. And uh, I was really trying time. And one of, uh, one of the journals that I had was, was primarily filled up with an exposition of First Peter 5, 1 through 5. And so I was praying about what the Lord would have me to share with you guys uh, at, at this pre-conference where we're going we're gonna to quadruple, not quadruple the next one where it's five, whatever that is. We're going to go up by that much for tonight's session. I know quadruple's four, but it's going to be by five. So uh, whatever that word would be in Latin, because quadruple's Latin apparently. Um, so so uh, I was thinking, you know what, I, I want to go back and I want to work back through that text because it had been some years since I had worked through it, but I remembered it was really impactful for me. And I remembered it was something that God had used. Oftentimes as a pastor, teacher, preacher, and you're called on to speak somewhere, those of you that, that are pastors or, or, or teachers, you probably identify with this, you've got sort of a catalog of, of core or key messages that you might use in a certain uh, situation. Uh, men's conference, leadership conference, teachers conference, something like that. This is a message that I just remember it really meant a lot to me. And I remember that in, in one of the Bibles that, that I had that I had preached out of for about five years that, that I lost in the fire, I remember I had this exposition written out in the pages, the extra pages at the back. But I can't remember what, I, I can't remember what it said. And I thought, okay, that's God saying, you need to go back through this probably, and you need to learn it for yourself. And then I'd, I had plan to share with you uh, a talk on leadership principles that I've learned in a quarter century of ministry. Leadership principles. And I have a lot of those, and I have a lot of personal principles that I sort of try to live my life by, uh, but the Lord would have me to go to this text, and so work through this text, and I'm excited to share it with you. And then we're going to continue on from 6 down to verse 11 as well, and we'll be brief in the text. 
Uh, but I want to learn from the Word of God what it looks like to shepherd biblically. And so uh, Peter begins by telling us that we are to shepherd the flock of God. Now he's talking specifically to pastors. If you look in verse 5, uh, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, I exhort the elders among you. So he's speaking to pastors. So this would be primarily targeted at pastors uh, elders, overseers, but their principles then that those who are in any sort of a teaching ministry are going to need to glean from this. We need to take principles that come out of uh, instructions for pastors, particularly as it has to do with leadership and teaching, and learn from that. So he exhorts the elders. So this is a pastoral instruction. It's a pastoral calling. In verse uh, 2, he begins by saying, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So he starts with a command. He starts with an imperative. Shepherd is a command. It's an imperative. It's not an idea that's ambiguous. It's not an, an idea that's sort of gray. I was on the phone yesterday with a young man in ministry who's been tasked with hiring, uh, a young, uh, hiring someone for a position who will have direct influence over young people and he said there's this young man and he's just dynamic in his ability to communicate and he's and the boys love him and he's been volunteering here in the ministry it's a parachurch organization he's been volunteering they love him he's really great with activities he's got a great sense of humor but and he started to go into some sort of weird quirky doctrinal stuff about visions and angels and this guy has some really weird i don't want to i I didn't really even understand what all he was saying and i said well you've been tasked with shepherding those boys and part of that task is that you have to protect what they're going to hear right you're going to protect what what they're going to be taught you got to protect what they're going to be uh how they're going to be instructed those of you that are student pastors you you understand that who you select to lead small groups or who you work with to, to lead small groups, that's a, that's a pretty important component of how you do what you do. Those of you who are small group leaders, you've hopefully, you're in that position because you want to take part in the discipleship of young people. And so shepherding is an imperative. And anytime there's an imperative or a command in Scripture, the, the, there's usually not wiggle room for negotiation. So when, when God gives a command, when God gives an imperative, he doesn't say, here's, a, here's an imperative, a command. Take the basic command and then shape it and do with it what you want to. We don't get that model in Scripture. When God gives us a command, when he gives an imperative, typically it's, it's running in a really narrow lane. Now, there may be cultural adaptation. So shepherding in one culture may look a little different than shepherding in another culture, but there's, there's not much wiggle room when it comes to how we're to uh, carry out a command of scripture. So shepherd the flock of God. So he begins by giving us a clue, a hint. He says, shepherd the flock of God by making it clear, we don't own the flock that we shepherd. We are under shepherds. John 10 is that really beautiful writing on the good shepherd that Jesus is. And Psalm 23 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because of all of the indications of what a good shepherd does. We are under shepherds as small group leaders and Sunday school teachers and pastors and student pastors. We're under shepherds. We don't possess the flock, but we do need to be serious about how we're going to shepherd the flock because we're doing it under the authority of the one who's called us. 
So the first, the first indicator of the imperative or the command that we're given is that this is, this is not my rodeo. This is, this is not my show. I'm not the one in charge. I'm not the boss. I answer to the one who is in charge. And that puts me in this. I'm closer in position to those who sit in the seats that I lead and shepherd and teach or who sit across the table or across on, on the furniture on the other side of the room than I am to the one who has commissioned me to do this because I am a fallen, justified, in the process of being sanctified individual who needed atonement for my sin. That, that I'm human. I'm, I'm not supernatural in my calling. But the calling in and of itself is supernatural because it's commissioned by God. And so I shepherd the flock that belongs to God. And, he, and then he gives a, some specificity about the flock. He says, shepherd the flock that is among you. Okay, so I'm having, uh, this was a few years ago, and you, you may have heard this saying before. This was new to me. Uh, I was told a saying. Uh, there, was a, there was a pastor who was, lead, he, he pastors a really large church. And uh, if I said his name, probably everybody in here would know him. And, uh, and I have a great deal of respect for the man. But I'd been to his church, and what I saw at his church was, was very lavish. Very, very lavish. Seven, 8,000 people on a Sunday. Very lavish. Uh, there was an aquarium in the church. It was awesome and impressive, but just seemed like, a lot of money to be spent. Uh, there was a Starbucks kiosk, um, which again was glorious. I was so excited to have a good cup of coffee to go in and sit down and listen to a really good biblical sermon. Uh, I noticed the cars in the parking lot were, were you know, higher end vehicles. Most of the people looked like upper middle class. Most of them were upper middle class type folks. And uh, so I I reached out to the pastor and I said, and he's been pastoring his church since it was a church of about 300 people. And, and I said, I want to, I want to, I want one hour of your time. I want to sit for an hour and ask you questions and I don't have an angle. I want to learn from you. And I, in the email, I explained, I'm not, I'm not going to come in there and try it. I'm not, I don't have an angle. I'm just, I'm blown away by what, what God's doing in this ministry. And I'm a nobody. You don't know who I am probably. And, uh, so Anyway, it was about seven months later, I got to go sit and talk with this guy. It was, a, it was about a month to six-week process of getting the appointment set up. Go in and sit down with this guy and I say, okay, what? At my church, now when I say my church, I don't take possession of the church, but we all use that terminology, right? We own safe grounds there. My church. My church. This is my church. This, I, I love this church. At my church, uh, the men wear t-shirts and jeans and cowboy boots and chew tobacco in church. Guys dip in church. I mean, this is a mountain culture. And so I don't, like when I'm up preaching and I see a, a guy spitting in a spit bottle, I don't think it's weird. It's just kind of the culture. And I'm glad he's at church. I'm thankful he's at church. And so I'm talking to this pastor and I'm kind of like, I don't understand the dynamic of like, how, how, how are you guys rectifying and justifying spending the money you're spending and and i'd made it clear to him i was not speaking against that i really wanted him to explain to me their their ministry philosophy and so he said well it's easy he said we live in in such an affluent community he said you would have to drive a 10 mile radius to find a trailer park or a housing project 
He said 90% of our people live within this affluent community as a bedroom community to a really large and growing city. And he said, the average household income in our church is probably pushing a quarter of a million dollars. And he said, these people would probably not stay in their seat at your church for more than one service and they wouldn't come back. And he said, the Lord years ago gave us a burden to engage the upper middle class community of this suburban area of this city. And he said, God's been very faithful and we've seen a lot of people come to faith in Jesus. He said, we baptized, I don't remember how many, hundreds, if not over a thousand people a year. Most of them are over 30 years old and most of them are successful businessmen, businesswomen, people from corporate America. I thought, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Jesus loves wealthy people. That's pretty cool. And, and, and I said, so how, I said, I don't know how I would even know how to minister in that context. You know, we're talking through about, he's explaining to me, yeah, but God hasn't called you to minister in this context. He's called you to minister to folks in the mountains where you're from. He said, here's, here's what I've learned. And he's sitting there in like really nice clothes. I asked him what kind of skin his cowboy boots were made out of. It was ostrich. It sounds really expensive, you know. He had a belt that matched them. Mine are made out of like grade B cowhide, you know. <laughs> and he said, a good shepherd is probably going to look and smell like his sheep. And I thought, that's a really good principle. That's, that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. This is why, like, when you think about the indigenous missions principle, uh, if you go into a foreign culture, if you go to a culture where you're a different skin color, uh, immediately, you know, like in Africa or South Asia, you look ethnically different, there are going to be some cultural barriers that you've got to climb over to really be able to engage those people. Now, you may look like them, but if you're born and raised in America, maybe you get over the first barrier, then you open your mouth and talk, and they go, oh, he or she's American. Now we've got another cultural barrier to get over. We've seen this in the work that we do in Africa. There's oftentimes sort of this elitism associated with Americans and so there's oftentimes cultural hurdles we got to get over in student ministry usually those hurdles are a lot smaller and so that principle of a good shepherd smells like sheep it's 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 summed up in the idea that we're shepherding the flock that is among us we're living and dwelling among these people that we're, there's no real cultural barrier don't believe the lie that you're old and they're young and so there's a barrier they just like what you know what kids associate with people that are real people that are genuine people that love them and care about them and don't don't like like i don't care that i'm way older than the teenagers that i minister I don't care i don't even i don't care about that it doesn't bother me and they pick up on that and so shepherding the flock of god that is among us carries with it the idea that we're going to dwell among the sheep or among the flock among those that we shepherd now he says exercise and oversight and he's going to break down how we exercise oversight so we're under the authority of god but there is a certain authority that god's given us in the ministry that we do and he breaks it down uh, a couple of ways here three ways to be exact so as we uh, shepherd what we would call incarnationally in other words, you don't just show up on Sunday or Wednesday and teach your session, but you're 
going to their ball games. You go to ball games, don't you? Going to their ball games. Uh, hopefully, if you're in a school system, it'll let you do it. You're, you're grabbing lunch with them from time to time. One of the coolest things to do is to show up at the high school if they'll let you. You may be in a district where they won't let you do this with a stack of pizzas, not Domino's, because you already served them that at every youth event. Like, good, like find a local, you know, brick oven joint, someplace that does it right, and show up and blow the whistle and watch your youth group, you know, come running and bring in their friends. And, you know, just things like that where we're, where we're engaging them uh, and dwelling among them, having them uh, in our homes when that's, uh, you know, applicable or practical or appropriate. Uh, and so exercising oversight, this is the idea now. We're getting the idea that we're dwelling among them, but we're not first and foremost their buddies. We have pastoral responsibilities, even if you're not a pastor, just in the context of this text, oversight is being exercised. So we have leadership responsibilities. Okay, so we're, we're exercising oversight first and what he's going to do is he's going to give opposing ideas. Number one, not under obligation. I mean, not under compulsion, rather. Not under compulsion. That means not begrudgingly. I'm not doing this begrudgingly. Like, oh, I really don't want to do this, but there's nobody else to do it, so I'll just do it and be grumpy about it. I believe, uh, I believe the idea of doing something under compulsion, I think I see that a lot of times where someone, have you ever been around someone who, who's, they've been in ministry so long, that maybe they need to go do something else now because they've lost vision, passion, a, a real heart for students to care about students or people in general or families. They no longer care about them. And it's sort of just this, oblig either it's an obligatory, well, I just got to go through the motions, or it's I don't have any other marketable skills. So I'll just keep doing this. It's not, it's not under compulsion, but willingly, which means whole, wholeheartedly. I'm going to give my whole heart to this. I'm going to do this 100%. I'm all in. I'm giving myself to it. 100%. This is, if you've ever, those of you that have come to SWO for a camp or a conference as a youth pastor, this is when you got stuck on stage, you have an egg smashed on your head or having to drink something really foul, you know, and you're like, why am I doing this? Well, because you are with your whole heart dwelling among and leading these students. You ever have that moment where you're like, oh, the things we'll do in the name of student ministry. Man, why am I up here? Why am I in this situation? Well, because it's wholehearted. Willingly, as God would have you. Verse 3. Not domineer. Oh, I skipped one. I'm sorry. Not for shameful gain. And some of you would be like, oh, yeah, it's definitely not for shameful gain. You should see my paycheck. <laughs> or, or that you don't get a paycheck. <laughs> you're a volunteer. And yeah, no, no shameful gain. Um, there's gain, but it's shameful on the church's part, what they're paying me. <laughs> like, shame on them, right? Um, not for shameful gain. And, and, and it would be easy for us, those of us who don't either receive compensation or who receive part-time compensation or who, just to be honest, are probably worth more than we're being paid in terms of a marketable skill set. It would be easy to become puffed up in that. But here's what's equally easy would be for someone who is volunteering their time to then have a sense of, well, I can kind of do this the way I want to do it because I'm not getting paid for it. If you submit to the call that God's placed on your life, if it's as a small group leader, you're not in charge. You, you agreed. You surrendered. You submitted to that. And so, so then 
to, to sort of start to think, well, then there's no selfish gain. But there is selfish gain. Probably in the more obvious ways that we see it, it's when there are sex scandals that occur or money scandals that are occurring or power, like abuse of power situations. And oftentimes there's just this sort of sense of haughtiness, like, well, I volunteer my time and I do this and I and I and I and I. And if we're not careful, we can become very conceited and, and, and boastful in and of ourselves for what we're doing. And so we're not to shepherd, we're not to lead, we're not to minister for sh- shameful gain. But, he says, eagerly. What does that mean? We get to do this. We get to do it. It is what an incredible gift to do student ministry to young people. What an incredible opportunity. We get to do it. He, he sort of qualifies that because he says, as God would have you to do there at the beginning of verse 2. So we get to do it as God would have us. We have to do it. Have you ever, been in, have you ever thought about the circumstance you're in where it's, I get to do this and I don't have a choice to do it? Think about that. Because we tend to think either it's either my mindset about something is I get to do this. I get to go to the beach. I get to go to the amusement park. I get to go, you know, to the movies. I get to go out to eat at my favorite restaurant. This is a this is a treat. This is something, you know, vacation comes around and hopefully you got to have a vacation at some point this summer. And if you didn't, maybe you got one coming. But uh, I, I get to go on this trip tonight. I get to go and watch my son you know, play high school sports. That's fun. That's an honor. It's a joy. Short-lived. But oftentimes, we take the I get to and we disassociate it from, I don't have a choice. Paul says in Romans 1, I am under obligation to everybody to preach the gospel. He says later in the book of Romans, I don't like, who is given a gift to God that he might be repaid? I'm not, I'm not under obligation to pay God back. I'm under obligation to everyone who is on this side of hell, but who's bound for hell, to teach and proclaim and share the truth with them. So there's an obligatory work that I'm doing, but I can also, so I can say, man, I get to do this thing in student ministry. It's incredible. And in the right tone of voice, that's, that's true. And I can say, I don't have a choice. I've got to do this. It is a burning in my soul to see young people hear the truth of the gospel and be impacted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, can't, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't say yes to this calling. I'd be miserable in my life. You ever have people question your sanity because you work with teenagers? You're like, they don't get it. They don't get it. Why? Because they don't have that obligatory, obligatory calling, that pull, that that passion to see students engaged with the gospel, genuinely discipled because it's not happening at home. So there's an obligation and there's a joy in getting to do it. Number three says, not domineering. I think the King James says, Lord, Lord it over. Not domineering, but being examples. What is an example of domineering? Well, we talked about an abuse of power. How about an abuse of the pulpit? Abuse of the pulpit. This is where teachers, lecturers, instructors, small group leaders use their platform to vent at students or to air out political opinions or to address things that have nothing to do with the text that's being taught. 
can easily domineer and bully from the pulpit or from the teaching position that maybe God's given you. We've got to be careful of that. But be an example. And this is the idea that my teaching and my preaching lines up with the example that these students see as I'm living my life in and among them. So if I'm going to shepherd the flock of God that is among me and you, that we're, we're living and we're dwelling among them and we're shepherding them, but then also as they see the example of our lives, they're close enough to us that what we teach and what we say is, is backed up with a life that reflects the same message. In other words, they see a life that is a shaped product of the message that's being proclaimed or taught or shared. It's kind of like, uh, it, it, it's, uh, I'm getting ready to do a, an elk hunt out in Wyoming and take my bow and go out and elk hunt. I'm really excited, but I've never done it before. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And you, and you have to call these things in, and they weigh like 800 pounds, and you're trying to call them in and shoot them with a, you know, a little arrow. And, I mean, Native Americans did it for a long time, and it worked out, so it can't be that hard, I'm thinking. You know, like, we have, we have technology now. Like, we have, you know, we don't have stick and string and homemade arrows, you know. They did it for thousands of years. So I'm reading, I'm studying, and I'm like, I read the guys. Like, when you're calling, so you've got the bull elk and the cow elk. The bull's the boy one, the cow's the girl one, right? So they make different vocalizations. The cow makes something like 13 different vocalizations. And you got my little mouth calling. I'm trying to call this thing. Like get in the truck and drive where nobody can hear you because you sound ridiculous. And then, then, the, then the bull makes several vocalizations. How do I, voc- how do, I do this? How? And finally I found the guy who was demonstrating it on YouTube. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. That's great. I wonder if it really works. Then I found a guy who would demonstrate it, then pan away and show it in action. And he would call this wild animal within 10 feet of him. And you'd go, I see the principles and the instruction and the methodology. I see the strategy at work and I see the effectiveness of it. We're all wired to need examples like, show me an example. T- tell me how to do something, but then let me see what it looks like. And so we have this incredible opportunity to be examples to our young people, not just to preach or teach or say, and, and knowing that, by the way, they're paying attention to what you put on Facebook and Instagram. And like, we probably, if we're going to be in ministry, should just not be political and talk about Donald Trump on our dang Facebook page unbelievable unbelievable a man who makes the most demeaning degrading i'm not on politics right now nothing to do with how you vote i'm saying we don't like we don't need to champion public figures and their opinions that are going to send confusing messages to our young people i'm ranting on that right now because it just happened i just had this brought to my attention sit down because i'm gonna make sure i don't Abuse the pulpit. <laughs> Shepherd young people in their lives need to be example, not just in the, in the physical interaction, but if you choose to use social media as a platform, just use it in a way that's going to positively grow the kingdom. I don't really care who gets elected in our next presidential race. And neither do your students. But knowing how to deal with cutting or the shame that's associated with having been sexually abused 
or anxiety or depression or racism or drug addiction or porn addiction, we probably ought to focus our attention there. That's probably what we need to pay attention to. And so we shepherd, not domineering our opinions or ideas over them, but teaching the Word of God and then being an example of someone who faithfully follows that which we are rightly dividing. So, we continue. We get down to verse 6. Let's keep going. He says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I need to know my place. I'm an ambassador of the king, the glorious king, but I'm not the king. I'm a representative. I'm an ambassador. Go back up to verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There are days where that verse, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, is a great motivator in my life. There is going to be a point in time where I'm going to face Jesus, who is the chief shepherd. Only time I think this phrase is used in all of Scripture. And here, in the ESV, it capitalizes the word shepherd. No doubt who we're talking about here. There's going to be a point where I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account for how I've done this, how I've responded to this calling. And so he says we should humble ourselves in that. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. You want effective ministry? You want impactful ministry? You want ministry? That, what do we want our ministry to be measured by? Do we want it to just be measured numerically? I don't have a problem with numbers. I hope you can grow your ministry from 10 students to 300 students. As long as you're engaging those 300 students with the gospel and not with cornhole. You know, like, cornhole's good. We got it at our youth group. But as long as it's not an activities-based deal, not knocking cornhole. I love cornhole. So, so if we can grow our ministry from 10 to 300 and it's solid discipleship, that's awesome, and I hope God would do that. But what I'm going to be sort of gauged by is not like uh, how many people were in attendance, but it's the, it's the quality of evangelism and the quality of discipleship that I'm providing for these students. That's what I'm going to give an account for. So I want to be able to stand before the Lord and know, hey, I, was, I never at one point thought I was the one in charge. You're the king, and I'm an ambassador of the king. And you're a glorious king. And God will exalt us in that situation. Like when we humble ourselves, God's the one that does the exaltation. And a ministry where Christ is exalted, we just put Christ up. We just hold Christ up. We exalt Jesus. That's, that's going to be a good ministry. That's going to be a healthy ministry. Like you can't go wrong if you're doing that. You may not figure out how to grow numbers. You may figure out how to grow numbers. You may not figure out, like you may stay always like one step behind with pop culture. Ever been around that youth guy? He's like trying to throw cool phrases out, but they're from like three years ago. I think I am that guy, actually. It's really funny when that happens. Really funny. I'll never forget years ago uh, hearing someone reference a really well-known pop star who had been off the scene for about seven years. And he referenced him in a, 
in a setting with about a, a five or six hundred students, you know, and starts talking about this singer, and like none of the kids in there really knew who this guy was. And I remember thinking, oh, note to self, at least if you're going to use a name, use one that's been you know, front and center in the last three months, you know, because it's changing so fast. You can't keep up with it. There was, like, when we were kids, when I say we were kids, I'm older than 95% of the folks in here. When we were kids, like, you could watch MTV, but you could only watch it in real time because the Internet didn't exist. And so you had to watch whatever programming was going on. Uh, VH1, but I never watched that. I, I never, I, I think I was grown by the time that was really taken off. I didn't see that, but I know that one was kind of, I was counting your only two avenues to pop culture. Or, or, on Sunday, you can listen to Casey Kasem's Top 40. But you can't play anything back. You better catch it on the first pass to know what song was number five and three and one. That was it. Nowadays, you can't keep up with the Top 40 because there's like so many different charts. You take a band like uh, 21 Pilots who exploded without radio airplay, Right? And they throw something up on YouTube, and in the month, it's had 50 million views. So you've got YouTube sensations, Instagram stars, the mainstream Hollywood media elite. Then you've got so many different genres of music. Don't try to keep up with it. Don't try to keep up with it. You, you won't be able to do it. Take the pressure off of you. Like, I'm saying this so you can be encouraged. Oh. <sighs> I can be in youth ministry and I don't have to know all that stuff. Nope. <laughs> I don't know any of it. It's okay. But don't bluff and act like you do. <laughs> you will be completely like, you will lose all credibility with students. And so what your ministry can be always identified and marked by is just exalt Jesus. Exalt Jesus. Exalt Jesus. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. Two commandments Jesus bowled it all down to. Love God, love people. One commission, that's go and tell people about Jesus and make disciples out of them. So if we, if we whittle the whole Christian life down to, our ministries are built around the great commandment of loving God and loving people and the great commission of going and making disciples, then we'll be okay. We'll be okay. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In the midst of anything I'll face in my ministry, any ministry struggle, any hurdle, anxiety, depression, discouragement, defeat, opposition, pride, condemnation, burnout, loneliness, or anything else that I may face, I can know this, He cares for me. God genuinely loves you. And he doesn't love you because you're in student ministry. The love that Jesus has for you is an intrinsic love, which means he doesn't love you for something that you are providing for him. He is projecting love and value onto you. We teach our staff this. We say it this way. God doesn't love you because of something inside of yourself. He loves you because of something inside of himself. He, it's the only relationship in the world like that. Closest thing we would get would be the, the relationship of a parent to a child. It's an intrinsic value. It's an intrinsic love. God is projecting that love onto us. And so we might teach that to students, but let's be honest, there's days where we probably need to sit down and bask in that truth that he really legitimately loves me and cares for me. 
he just, he, God loves me. There's days where, and some of you right now, you're in the middle of a season of burnout. You're in the middle of a season of frustration from leadership. You're in the middle of a season of not having the support that you need. Just pause and what these words must have meant for Peter. He cares for me. He cares for you. He loves us. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This is really getting into what we're talking about this weekend. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we need to take our ministry serious, and we need to take our holiness personal. Take our ministry serious, and take our holiness personal. We're to guard and watch, and be watchful, and be sober-minded, and be alert, and know that there's, there are real enemies Uh, There's a real enemy and there are real traps that he will set for us in ministry. Verse 9, resist no matter what. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist no matter what. Satan wants me to think that I'm the only person struggling the way I'm struggling. He wants to isolate me. He wants to isolate you. But I need to remember that there are many in the same situation that I'm in. And hopefully a weekend like this, we can encourage one another with that. Verse 10, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Trust God's sanctifying grace. I must be strengthened, restored, confirmed, established in Christ. The distinction of verse 10 is that I am being restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established in Christ, by Christ. God, tell a group of us one time, he was suffering a lot of burnt, a lot of, uh, it was a larger ministry and a lot of people were leaving. It wasn't a church, it was a large children's ministry uh like children's home and a lot of they couldn't they can't, we were working with them like having staff issues turnover issues get to drilling into it and realize oh it's because they're burning their people out they're literally burning their people out like you you can't do that it doesn't work that way you'll burn people out. you'll either burn them out to where they'll quit exasperated or you'll burn them out to where they fail in the area of personal holiness somebody gets burnt out enough that's when, the, that's when the affair happens. That's when the porn addiction flares back up. That's when the peel bottle gets broken back out. Like there's Burnout is a real thing. And so what, what does it look like for me as a, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be constantly restored, confirmed, refreshed? That's critical. My constant renewal, Romans 12 the renewing of my mind through the word of God, Jesus in Ephesians 5, washing his bride with the word of the, the water of the word. Like that's critical. But also what like like understanding the critical importance of of being restored constantly in Christ. In Christ. My personal union with Christ. My personal holiness with Christ is where I'm going to draw on that restoration and that daily strengthening. And then I love this in verse eleven. Peter gives this doxological benediction to his letter before he goes into his final greetings. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Peter's like a masculine dude, you know. 
oftentimes Paul would write, to him be glory forever and ever. And we can do that. Peter's like, I like that dominion word. Let's remember who's in charge. Peter needed to be thumped in the head once in a while. Hey, I'm the boss. I think dominion resonated with Peter. And some of us need to be reminded that there, we are working under a dominion, in a domain. And to, to God be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Why? Because we get to do this. Because we get to do this. It's an incredible honor to get to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you take your word, and as we go into uh, a time of discussion and share groups and sharing, uh, whether that's with team members from our own church or, or, or with uh, staff folks from SWO, and just as, as we group up and, and have conversation, discussion, I pray that this would be a time of edification, encouragement. pray that we would learn from Peter things that will help us, uh, or, or from the Holy Spirit at the, at the pen of Peter, things that will help us as leaders, as under-shepherds, and as those who are uh, striving to lead your flock, shepherd your flock, lead your people well. Love you and praise you and thank you for uh, those that are here and those that are coming and will be here for later today. And I pray that everything that happens this week would be uh, for your glory and for our good and our holiness and for more effective ministry so that the students and families we impact um, might become more like Jesus and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.